1: Greetings, comrades, and welcome to the Eastern Border. This episode will be particularly difficult because it's one of the things where I've been able to actually hunt down the people who participated in the whole process and, and everything that went down there. And um, and yeah, those stories were not kind ones. Again, this is a, sort of a continuation of some of the stuff that we have been talking about previously on this show, both in the prison episodes and... Um, well, in the Ryazan bombings and the stories about the Soviet army in general. You see, I wanted to touch about one of the kind of the weirdest experiences that a post-Soviet person would have, and that is the Chechen Wars. Both of them. They were clearly a very tragic period, in a lot of ways they could be compared to the Soviet involvement in Afghanistan. However, Chechen wars were in a way even more pointless than that. And if you've seen the classic Russian movie Brat, or Brother, the first one, the second one's more of a pop movie. First one was an extremely low-budget affair, but it's considered one of the most excellent Russian cinematic experiences ever to be put on the big screen. And you know that after that war, a lot of people came back home scarred, and it was a terrible thing for everyone, and it's a dangerous matter to tread these things lightly. So I'll try my best to provide a complete experience of all of this, and as usual, we shall be starting with the timeline, I suppose. And then we will get to the people's studies. I don't know how long all of this will be as I'm just setting out here. Maybe we'll split it in two parts, maybe not. It's just that I'd rather give you a thorough experience. So, after the quite funny last episode about the MMM, I guess we get back to our... um less funny shows, and talk about some serious matters, which won't be happy or nice, and, uh, I don't know, if you're listening to this with some minors, you probably shouldn't, at least, definitely not the part when we'll get to the soldier studies, because, well, at some point, uh, it got a bit much, even for me. But for now, I'm going to have to start to look at all the timeline of events. Now, I have to state that the Second Chechen War... Officially ended in 2001, but, well, to be real, everything just went down there up until 2009, and a lot of articles about the timeline just are written in 2004-2006, which is where I took the timeline from, so if you hear words up until this point, then know that it's somewhere in mid-2000s, which basically means that, uh, yeah, they were still written while everything was still going on. I'll try to add commentary and context in these cases, obviously, so that you don't feel lost, in a way. But it was very interesting, as apparently early 2000s was a brilliant period where a lot of people wanted to write their own commentary on these horrible events. Yeah, some of them were, well, let's just say, a bit more jarring than others. However, tactical analysis is, well, not something that I would prefer to concentrate upon. But to even begin to talk about the Chechen war, we have to go back to the to the old guy, to Boris Yeltsin. Kind of adds to the whole story, and uh, sadly this whole war is tied together with various political maneuvers. See, firstly, when Boris Yeltsin was elected president of the newly founded Russian Federation in 1991, his role was largely undefined. As the first popularly elected head of state in Russian history, and with an ambiguous constitution giving him the opportunity to exercise a great deal of authority, it was up to Yeltsin to set the precedent for his position. Now, because of a loosely defined constitutional relationship between the executive and legislative branches, and a complete lack of precedence, the president and Congress continually butted heads for the most of 1992 and 1993. They refused to pass Yeltsin's dramatic economic reforms, and rejected many of his executive appointments. Yeltsin attempted to clear up this constitutional relationship by submitting a referendum on presidential powers to the Congress in March 1993. They not only refused to pass it, but the Congress, the Gosduma, attempted to impeach Yeltsin in response. After the unsuccessful impeachment attempt, the Congress and Yeltsin spent five months in effective stalemate, and very few reforms were actually passed. The conflict over economic reform and the untested nature of executive-legislative interaction were the main reasons why the two bodies completely failed to work together. During the summer of 1993, both the Congress and President Yeltsin drafted secret plans to dissolve the other. But the President acted first. On the 12th of September 1993, Yeltsin suspended the Congress and announced his plans for an elected bicameral Federal Assembly. In an emergency session, the Congress attempted to counter Yeltsin's attack, but he had the legislative building surrounded by Russian military and police forces. A standoff lasted until October the 4th, when Yeltsin ordered the military to force out the legislators. After a short but deadly conflict, pro-Yeltsin forces claimed control of the whole nation. The new constitution Drafted primarily by Yeltsin's political aides, was ratified by popular vote in December 1993. The new constitution was designed with the express purpose of eliminating the mechanisms that had allowed the stagnant political conditions of the previous year. It accomplished this, not surprisingly, by expanding the power of the executive branch... In addition, Yeltsin's new constitution watered down the potency of judicial authority by increasing the number of judges in the constitutional court and strengthened the federation by leaving no provisions for regional secession. In this bold move of executive bravado, Yeltsin succeeded overwhelmingly in strengthening his position, if only temporarily. He was able to pull off this dramatic power consolidation primarily because of the favor he enjoyed with the political and economic elites of the era. In administrating the transfer from a state-owned economic infrastructure to a system of increased privatization, which, again, we mentioned in the previous episode, Yeltsin had been able to recreate the class of elites that emerged in post-communist Russia. For that, he was rewarded with significant political capital and a fair amount of authority in implementing his desired reforms. Now, according to Carnegie scholar Andrei Ryabov, Yeltsin created a pseudo-feudal system of oligarchic special interests. "...lacking solid resources to retain his power, he had to buttress it by delegating actual authority to the largest interest groups in exchange for their loyalty." Now, afterwards, obviously, some of the most powerful people in Moscow were, surprise, surprise, not the politicians, but instead those in control of the natural gas industry, the leaders of the electricity monopoly, and the railways and obviously the young businessman dominating the Russian financial market. After rewriting the constitution, Yeltsin was able to implement more of his economic program. However, the collapse of the ruble in 1994, that also coincides with the beginning of Mavrody's scheme mentioned in the previous episode, had a crazy effect of the realization of any economic gain that might have come about as the result of his reforms, which is still a blunder, sort of, a pseudo-blunder, but mostly remembered by everyone today by saying that, well, obviously it is the fault of Yeltsin and every other person who ever wanted to make any reforms. Even, you know, ignoring all the actual good that these reforms did. And this is mostly a thing which hardcore fanatical communists tend to tell Yeltsin supporters or ex-Yeltsin supporters as their main issue with them. Furthermore, his authority was continually compromised by the political deterioration of Chechnya. It's a tiny Islamic republic in the North Caucasus that Moscow had been troubles controlling since the late 1980s. You see, with the rise to power of Mikhail Gorbachev, his sweeping reforms of the Soviet state and the subsequent dissolution of the USSR, the Chechens saw an opportunity to throw off the yoke of the Russian imperial dominance, which had suffocated them for centuries. However, we should um, go back to a bit of a historical tangent here. And this is from the book of Anatol Livyany, Chechnya, Tombstone of Russian Power, Yale, 1998. Mm -hmm. The continuity of conflict... ...between Chechens and Russians began in the 18th century... ...when cavalrymen sent by Peter the Great were soundly defeated... ...in an attempt to suppress resistance to Russian rule. Later, in the same century, a popular Sufi cleric, Sheikh Mansur... ...declared a holy war against impious Muslims and Russians alike... ...who he saw as a threat to the sanctity of Islam. A more protected engagement began in 1816 when General Alexey Yermolov was appointed as the Russian commander-in-chief in the Caucasus. He adopted an aggressive strategy towards the Chechens, viewed by most Russian policymakers as bandits, a term which is still commonly used in reference to the Chechens. Yermolov's ruthless tactics aimed at stopping Chechen raids into Russian territory resulted in complete control of the regional tribes. But they also sparked organized resistance among the Chechens and inspired the rise of Chechnya's most beloved folk hero, Imam Shamil, who controlled the resistance beginning in 1832. Shamil managed to engage the Russian forces for over 30 years, leading Chechen forces who committed their lives to the cause of the war. During the Bolshevik revolution, the Chechens fought on the side of the Bolshevik Red Army, taking the opportunity to punish the pro-Tsarist whites and hoping to gain independence at the end of the conflict. From 1917 to 1920, intense fighting in the North Caucasus continued to be a significant distraction for the White Army and helped contribute to their ultimate defeat. Though the Chechens rose up against the Red Army in August 1920, when they realized that they would not be granted national independence, the rebels were defeated and subsumed in the formation of the new Soviet Union. Under their new Soviet occupiers, the Chechens refused absolutely to participate in the programs of Lenin and Stalin, rejecting the affirmative action policies aimed at fostering nationalism in the ethnic republics, as well as the collectivization procedures, which began to be implemented in the late 1920s. In 1929, tens of thousands of Soviet troops were sent to crush the guerrilla resistance and the conflict continued sporadically throughout the late 1930s. By 1943, Stalin was ready to get rid of his Chechen problem. Accusing them, incorrectly, of collaborating with the Nazis, Stalin ordered the deportation of Chechens, Ingush, Karachai, Balkars, Meshketian Turks and Crimean Tatars from the North Caucasus. 478,000 Chechens and Ingush were deported from the North Caucasus to Kazakhstan and 78,000 died en route or in the first harsh Kazakh winter. The Chechens and Ingush were thus officially removed from existence in the Soviet records, and their lands were divided and absorbed into the boundaries of neighboring countries. Ukrainians, Belarusians, and Russians were imported to inhabit the deserted cities and villages. No mention was made of the deportation in Soviet media for two years after the event. In 1956, Stalin's successor Khrushchev, old buddy of ours, officially condemned the deportation and reintroduced the Checheno-Ingushetian Republic. The displaced Chechens returned en masse after 12 years of resilience in the inhospitable lands of Central Asia. The lasting effect of the deportation on the psyche of the Chechens cannot be underemphasized. Their return home proved their unwavering fortitude as a people and showed that they would never be controlled without a fight. In fact, more Chechens returned than had been deported as a result of their quote, ethnic solidarity and kinship-based mutual support, sheer determination to survive, and a very high birth rate. End quote. The deportations not only strengthened the solidarity of the Chechen identity and steeled their temperament against the Russian state, but it confirmed all their previous suspicions about the Russians and gave them physical, historical proof of the Russians' design against them. The Chechens returned to a hostile crowd of non-Chechen squatters deeply resented in the repatriation of the deportees. Intercultural violence became common, but mostly through individual skirmishes and a few mob riots. By the 1970s, most of the imported Slavic peoples had been pushed out of their temporary homes, the violence had subsided, and Chechens established their participation in this semi-modernized state. End quote. Well, as you can see, this clearly was not a completely nice place to be in, and um, yeah, not exactly fun even throughout the history
0: hello there thank you for tuning in into another episode of the eastern border we are so happy to announce that this episode is brought to you by our friends at rusansov.com. if you're looking to buy new art don't forget to use the code eastern border for a discount on us remember head over to rusansov.com and happy shopping If, however, you want to support our show directly, head over to patreon.com or our website, theeasternborder.lv to find out how you can help out. For all things Eastern Border, don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Discord. And, as always, thank you so much for supporting us. We really appreciate each and every one of you. That's all from me now. See you online. This podcast... Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.
1: When Gorbachev's reforms began to reach the Chechens in 1989, the concept of glasnost brought about a turbulent atmosphere of, well, quite insane political activism and a a bit of a radical spirit to it. By mid-1989, young Chechen activists had formed the first political organization in the Republic. And, throughout the Caucasus, various activists began meetings in discussion of the possibility of a federal statehood of the peoples of the Caucasus. When the Russian Federation was created... The Chechens organized behind the leadership of retired Soviet Air Force Major General Johar Dudaev and declared themselves an independent nation. Consumed by his own battle to control the collapsing Soviet Union and preserve the new federation, Yeltsin failed to successfully intervene, and the Chechen separatists were awarded de facto independence until he could muster up enough military and political might to renew the conflict. Over the period from the Russian withdrawal to the invasion in December of 1994, the dysfunctional Chechen economy was not improving, unemployment hovered around 40%, and the expansion of the mm, criminal sector, you know, organized crime and business associated with it, provided at least adequate grounds to justify Russian intervention. Furthermore, Yeltsin refused to meet with Dudayev to discuss resolution. Viewing the Chechen leader as a head of a, quote, criminal regime, end quote, and relying too heavily on a close-knit cater of manipulative hawks, Yehudin neglected the importance of diplomacy in resolving the conflict. Dudayev was guilty of the same level of neglect, due primarily to his utter, complete political inexperience, and, well, to be fair, utter and complete lack of organization within his own cabinet and uh, whatever they call the parliament there. Spurred by the conclusion of a similar standoff in the Central Asian region of Tatarstan, which, by the way, held a referendum of its own separation from the Russian Federation, which passed, but then, because of Yeltsin's new constitution, was deemed utterly illegal, so Tatarstan is still part of Russia, and uh, in the interest of protecting valuable oil reserves, which is the main reason of why they couldn't be allowed to leave, and pipelines in the Caspian region, and at the behest of aggressive hawks in his cabinet, Yeltsin authorized covert operations in support of anti-Dudaev forces within Chechnya in November of 1994. The operations proved to be a total failure on a number of levels. And, uh, well, I mean utter and complete failure. Dudaev's national army routed the opposition, taking over half of the tanks by seizure or destruction and capturing a handful of Russian officers as prisoners of war. Note, at the same time, um, there were famous stories about how various tanks were literally sold to the opposition soldiers, which also happened in the Second Chechen War, because, well, at that time the value of rubles had collapsed, and we have this MMM scheme, and some officers just want to make some extra buck on the side. So, well, one of my stories come up where um, Russian officers... Or Chechen opposition officers would just go to the separatist leaders and say, Hey, you know, I don't have any any skin in this game, so, you know, if you give me a nice little briefcase of money, say $10,000, I will just send this tank over there inside this nice little mountain pass where you can ambush it, and, uh, well, it's not my business what you do with the tank afterwards, just, you know, they won't resist much, you can just kill everyone inside the tank. And a lot of them did, and a lot of them got away with this, because, well... If your money's worthless, and this Chechnyan sort of republic, sort of separatists, yeah, they had oil. So, it wasn't very common for all these tanks, which you just heard about, some of them were captured legitimately, but a lot of them were... were literally sold off as... with the crew, so to speak. Which is, um... which is always fun. It's extra fun, as this story is... Probably the least horrid one and the least offensive one that you'll be hearing from this episode, to be honest. Also, Dudaev's forces managed to capture quite a lot of Russian officers as prisoners of war. While the Russian defense minister in Moscow denied any involvement in the attempted coup, the Chechen government blatantly displayed images of the POWs live on television. Still believing that a bloodless blitzkrieg as he called it, could shock and awe the tiny republic into submission within days, Yeltsin organized a secret security council meeting, all glorious, on November 29th, to organize a full-scale bombardment of Grozny and the deployment of 40,000 troops to the Chechen border. Public comments made by Moscow policymakers estimated the length of a successful invasion to be anywhere from two hours to two weeks. The invasion and bombardment were undertaken on the 11th of December 1994 in order to defend and restore Russia's unity. Yeltsin hoped to use a brief conflict and resounding victory to boost his approval rating, which had been slipping in the previous months. However, the bombardment quickly became a massive, gruesome, absolute quagmire. For the first time, the Russian media played a critical role in debunking the spin of the Moscow political machine, who then continued to report decisive tactical victories and low casualties in, uh, in the wake of just the opposite and um, tons and tons of incompetence. Oh, remember, this war mostly fought by um, them conscripts. As the war dragged on through 1995, it became one of the most ruthless, brutal, and inhumane conflicts in the recent memory. The Chechen forces, only 2,000 at the onset of the war, and mainly consisting of untrained civilians, were able to engage a Russian deployment that reached at least 20 times its size. The Russian forces, experiencing low morale, poor leadership, and inadequate armaments, continued to be ineffective and suppressing the mainly guerrilla forces that made up the Chechen resistance. Now, this war's completely devastating nature can be summarized by the fact that the Russian leaders began to view the ethnic Chechen population, not just the rebel forces, as the enemy. They used filtration camps where any suspected rebels were rounded up, interrogated, tortured, and often never returned. All told, the war produced over 100,000 casualties and forced over 400,000 native Chechens to flee into refugee camps in neighboring Dagestan and Georgia. Now, I do have to add here that many in the Russian army, however, were outraged at the invasion's poor planning and the poor justification for it. Like I said, the official justification, defending Russia's unity, did not really fare well with the claims of the critics, who really cited the obvious one, the geopolitics of oil and political manuring as the real motivations for war. In fact, according to Anatoly Liven, the guy who I quoted previously, 557 Russian military men, from all levels, were disciplined, dismissed, or deserted in protest of the invasion, and my personal interviews quite much support this, and we're not even here for the second Chechen War comrades. Also, the war's particularly brutal nature was experienced both in Chechnya and in Russia proper. One of the stories that I know is that in June 1995, Chechen commander Shamil Basayev's forces entered a hospital in the Russian town of Budenyevsk and took over a thousand patients and hospital workers. And they took them all hostage. Basayev's raid was intended to spark peace with Moscow. Yeltsin was out of the country at a conference in Canada and deferred responsibility for handling the crisis to his prime minister, Viktor Chernomyrdin. After a failed attempt to storm the hospital resulted in over 100 deaths, Chernomyrdin agreed to grant the rebels safe passage to Chechnya in exchange for the hostages. This disaster just intensified widespread criticism of Yeltsin's handling of the entire war and has been cited as one of the massive, massive turning points of the very own First War. Now, after being afraid of being held accountable for the disaster that continued to take lives within Russia's borders, Yeltsin began to discuss the prospects for negotiated peace in hopes of winning the re-election in the spring of 1996. Yeltsin recognized the importance of appeasing his electoral constituency and adjusted his policies accordingly. Although he did occasionally restrict media access and censor the press's freedom, for the most part, the critical media's voice actually was heard. Where previously Russian rulers, like, well, you know, Stalin, used state-controlled media to erase any threats of his authority overnight, the emergence of a critical and mostly free press, for the time being at the very least, which has now been dealt with, meant that Yeltsin actually would be held accountable for his actions. On April 22nd, the Russian army successfully assassinated Johar Dudayev with a missile directed to the signal coming from his satellite telephone. The removal of Dudayev from power gave Yeltsin a more consistent leader to deal with, as Aslan Mashadov was appointed commander of the armed forces. However, Yeltsin's commitment to peace in Chechnya seemed only to be a meaningless campaign promise after successfully reclaiming his presidential post, he obviously... Failed to withdraw the troops he vowed to relieve. After his re-election, the Russian forces resumed their ground offensives, inflicting civilian casualties in the mountain villages thought to be the headquarters for key Chechen leaders. Just as the conflict seemed to spiral out of control, a surprise attack on the eve of Yeltsin's inauguration changed the tide of the war. Maskhadov and a force of just 1,500 Chechens stormed the capital, Grozny, held by no less than 12,000 Russians and decisively defeated the unsuspecting occupiers. After subsequent bombardment, Yeltsin saw the reality of the exhausted conflict and he authorized the newly appointed Secretary of Security Council, Alexander Libed, to negotiate peace with Maskhadov. But, obviously, that's just part of the whole story. The resulting Kassav-Yurt Peace Agreement negotiated by the two diplomats was signed on the 31st of August 1996. The accord required that Russia withdraw all its troops from Chechnya and that it officially recognize Chechnya's internal government. Subsequently, Maskhadov was elected president of a semi-autonomous Chechnya. The second set of negotiations carried out by Maskhadov's government in May of 1997 "...on peace and the principles of relations between the Russian Federation and the Chechen Republic of Ichkeria," "...deferred responsibility to draft an explicit solution until 2001." For the time, the Chechens were again given de facto independence. Yeltsin's popularity declined severely almost immediately following his re-election primarily due to widespread rumors of corruption in his cabinet and among his political supporters the tools that he had used to strengthen his political base throughout his commitment to special interests came back to haunt him terribly. As Ryabov, one of my historical sources, explains, quote, Though fairly stable, such a system has been inefficient in terms of addressing wider national tasks and meeting new challenges, end quote. Although the system of exchanging rewards for political support gave Yates his power in the early years of his government, it ultimately caused his demise. Faced with deep-seated economic crises and deteriorating health, he continued to defer responsibility to his ministers and was at the back and call of his elite supporters. Characterized by conflicts with the Federal Assembly over prime minister appointments, constant cabinet reshuffling, numerous heart attacks and other serious health issues, well, mostly caused by his insane massive drinking problems, Yates' second term was an unmitigated disaster. In Chechnya, after the departure of Russian forces in 1996, little had changed. As a leader, Aslan Maskhadov was unable to convert the energy of revolution and nationalism into organized state institutions. Although citizens in Grozny could live without fear of aerial bombardment, most of the governmental infrastructure remained debilitated, gainful employment opportunities were scarce, and the most promising opportunities were in crime and banditry. You know... I guess true crime studies are just too popular not to even be mentioned here. Throughout the peace period, Yeltsin's government was unable to develop a strategy for dealing with the Chechens, especially since it was consumed by many of its own problems, including the August 1998 financial crisis, which led to a default of, well, Russia in general. However, chaos within Chechen borders as a result of Moscow's inability to exercise any influence over the organized bandits, led to a growing recognition that another conflict was imminent. Numerous border disputes between the Islamists and Russians heightened that tension, and by the summer of 1999, the situation reignited. And now, if you know something about 1999, and you want to know, um, some more, yeah, uh... More on all of this, and I will mention some of this now, but um, if you would look up the Ryazan Bombings episode that we made, um, I think a year ago, maybe a bit more, go check that one out before listening further here. Thank you. But a short story is going to happen here as well, but again, more details there. Now, on August 7th, 1999, a force of anywhere from 300 to 2,000 radical Islamists marched across the Dagestani border. The soldiers were a part of a minority resistance group comprised of Dagestanis and Chechens, along with some Arabs and other foreign Muslims. And their aim was to set up an Islamic state independent from the Russian Federation and Maschadov's Chechnya. However, they overestimated the popularity of their strict Wahhabi sect in Dagestan and met local resistance almost immediately. Seeing Wahhabi law as a threat to their own balance of Islam and government, local Dagestani officials appealed to the Russians for military assistance, who responded with relative quickness. Again, everything's a bit relative in this whole thing. Only days after the Quranic Puritans, so-called people, entered Dagestan, the newly appointed prime minister... You'll probably have heard of him. Vladimir Putin, yes, announced that he had been appointed to restore the rule of law to the border republics and that he would resolve the continuing conflict in Dagestan within two weeks. After two weeks of fighting, the rebels had retreated into Chechen villages, which were subsequently shelled by the Russian military. Even though the insurgents, led by an enigmatic rebel named Shamil Basayev, represented the views of a minority of Chechens, they became the predominant face of the Chechen separatist movement. And uh, they have had the most potent influence on Moscow's policy so far, well, up until Vasaev was eliminated and Ramzan Kadyrov took power. But that's uh, jumping to the end of the story. By the way, I hope that by now you understand why Putin really keeps Ramzan Kadyrov at a short leash and gives him tons of money because of his, you know, private army and everything, and why... um, Why Ramzan is basically allowed to run Chechnya as his own autonomous district. Because of all this mess that has happened before in the previous years. But at that time, the Shamil Basayev's insurgent mobilizing anti-Russian ideology, it uh, basically appealed to a lot of the marginalized youth who saw it as the, quote, the only discipline that can hold their society together. Although it appealed to the youths, it did not really take hold among the majority of Chechens. However, and we will talk about this and I guess, part two of this is inevitable, the brutality of the Russians and their pursuit of complete destruction of the Chechen rebels gave Basayev's camp a ton of legitimacy in the eyes of the Chechens. The Russians carried out their operations against the Chechens as a people, and not just against the opposition forces, and once again we had filtration camps, aerial bombardment, and torture indiscriminately, And, you know, both wars. And if you understand this, then know that Chechens come from all this tribal honor society. They come from a tradition of family, honor, and clan loyalty, where blood feuds and grudges between two groups can last for generations. To the Chechens, the study deportations and the inhumanity of the wars of all these years, well, yeah, that, for them, justified a radical response in the name of national pride. In other words, the Russian government in a way, really themselves, radicalized the Chechen population. And as far as I'm informed, well, Ramzan Kadyrov has to be extremely brutal, because not like anyone in there really enjoys all this stuff that has happened there. Now, again, just to remind you, in September 1999, after the rebels had been pushed out of Dagestan, Four explosions in Moscow and Dagestan apartment buildings claimed over 300 lives. Before any evidence had been collected, Chechens had already been convicted for these crimes in the court of public opinion and in the war rooms of the Kremlin. No terrorists were ever found, no group claimed responsibility. The nature of the bombings was further called into question when local police in the city of Ryazan discovered a bomb that had been planted by the Russian FSB security officials. Two days after the incident, the FSB director announced that the agents had planted the bomb as a drill to test the readiness of local police forces, and that the dismantled apparatus contained sugar, not real explosives. And just why the FSB would be engaged in such activities, yeah, that has never been explained, and, um, yeah. That's why I made that episode. Anyway, following this bizarre series of events, and the Kremlin's insistence on the fact that it's definitely Chechen terrorists, trademarked, and that they were all involved, the Russian public became significantly insecure. Shortly after the explosions, Putin appeared in front of Duma, and the Russian people, stating that his goal was to, quote, defend the population from the bandits. Declaring his intention was to wipe out the bandits, and this is direct, quote, <clears throat> In the shitter, Putin's aggressiveness became a source of stability for the Russian people, and his popularity obviously skyrocketed. Though Putin publicly at that time stated his commitment to negotiate with Muskhadov, he almost immediately called for a full-scale invasion. By October, Russian troops had entered Chechnya, and the war had reignited with renewed ruthlessness. Now, obviously, after that, Muskhadov had no choice but to defend his nation. Faced with destruction, the secular separatists joined forces with the Islamists and attempted to fend off the Russian offensives. In much the same fashion as the First War, the Russian ground forces met stiff resistance as they advanced on Grozny. Just before Christmas, the Russians began an organized attack to retake the Chechen capital, and it fell two months later. On New Year's Eve 1999, Boris Yeltsin made a surprise announcement. He was resigning, effective immediately. Putin was named acting president until the upcoming election. In lieu of his early resignation, the election was moved up to March. Putin's popularity would not have time to erode if victory in Chechnya proved elusive, and his competitors would not have enough time to organize effective campaigns against them. Though Putin's approval rating had been 35% when Yeltsin just appointed him to prime minister in August, it had surpassed 65% by October, and would not drop below 60% for the next four years, as he was overwhelmingly elected president in March 2000. The Russian army was successful in pushing the rebels out of Chechnya's major urban areas within the first two months of 2000. They used heavy-handed tactics to trap the rebels and destroy the Chechen towns. Though they inflicted heavy casualties, they did not squash the resistance that Putin had promised. The Increasingly effective rebel forces abandoned the cities, moved into the hills, and focused the energy of insurgency to basically guerrilla tactics and everything. And, obviously, Putin announced the end of the military conflict in 2001, turning what he now called a mm, anti-terrorist operation over to the FSB. Troops had to remain in Chechnya because of the continued raids by the rebels. And... Well, like I said, fighting truly, truly didn't stop up until the end of 2009. And uh, I suppose we shall do a nice break up here, because this hasn't been as brutal as uh, as expected, and uh, I'd rather give to the people who want just the historical facts of the Chechen War a chance to kind of take a break now, and uh, just listen to the history parts, because in the part two, we'll be looking at some, um, some war stories and some analysis of the whole event. And oh boy, that is definitely not going to be a nice affair. So, you know, strap yourselves in, and we're going to continue this in part two of the Chechen Wars.
0: Thank you for listening to the Eastern Border. is part of the Dark Myths Collective. Visit darkmyths.org for more shows like this one. The Dark Myths Void. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince.